This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. And I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Uh, Jamal, we are broadcasting again from uh, remote locations in Northern California. And uh, I'm sorry to tell all of our viewers and listeners, but that here in Northern California, we continue to be under a pretty extreme fire watch right now. Tragically and unfortunately, much of the beautiful Napa and Sonoma areas are under fire right now, and many wineries and many homes have uh, been destroyed in these fires, and they're not even 0% contained right now. Outside of your window and my window, we continue to see pretty bad air quality, and uh, we're under an extreme weather watch today. So just that as a backdrop for our viewers and listeners, knowing that we will continue to provide Arab Talk to you under these conditions. Having said all that, talking about... We have about- a red alert. We have a red, red alert as of uh, actually on Thursday and Friday. Exactly. So. Things are pretty, pretty bad right now, which is a good segue to talk about extreme conditions. We are going to speak about the extreme conditions later on in the show about what happened in the debates. That can be considered a red alert, I think, from a medical and psychiatric standpoint. When you watch the presidential debates between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, we'll be talking about that on the other side. But before we get to that, we have a really interesting interview about some mounting military tensions that are going on in the world, which not many people are talking about right now, Jamal. No, no. And and that's total silence in U.S. news, except for a report here and there in the New York Times and other publications, but really on TV, as you eloquently said, I mean, people are pretty much inundated with uh, still recovering from the aftermath of that horrible uh, presidential debate. So you don't have any coverage for, I think it's a very important story. And this story also affects not only it's not a regional, actually. It can blow up into the entire region, including the Middle East. And this is the Armenia-Azerbaijan fighting, which could spiral could. into a larger, a larger regional conflict, Jess. And this is, uh, you have intense fighting that has erupted in Nagorno-Karabakh. Right. That's a small enclave in the southern Caucasus uh, mountains, setting the entire region on edge. This is a fight primarily between Armenia and Azerbaijan, two former Soviet republics with long-held uh, grievances over land. But this involves Russia, Turkey, Israel, Iran, you know, many other countries. And since uh, these fightings broke about a week ago, uh, more than 100 people have died, including civilians. And, uh, and so we were fortunate enough to have a very good interview with a uh, Rafi Elliott. And Rafi Elliott is a Canadian-Armenian political risk analyst and journalist based in the capital of Armenia, Yerevan. Let's watch uh, this interview and listen to him. Nearly 100 people, including civilians, have died as battles rage on between Armenian and Azerbaijani forces over the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region. The mountainous enclave is recognized as part of Azerbaijan, but has been run by Armenians uh, since a war ended in 1994. The fighting that started three days ago now appears to be spilling out of the region. Joining Arab talk to shed more light on the conflict Rafi Elliott. Rafi is a Canadian-Armenian political risk analyst and journalist based in Yerevan, Armenia. Welcome to Arab Talk, Rafi. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. So Rafi, I mean, let me begin by saying that I hope that this conflict does not get any worse and that you stay safe. What started it all? Uh, So if you you need some uh, brief historical background, Obviously, I am Armenian myself, so there, keep that in mind that I may be biased, uh, but I will try to give you as objective an answer as possible. So from the Armenian point of view, uh, the, prov- the region of Nagorno-Karabakh 
The word Nagorno in Russian means mountainous, and Karabakh is a is a Turkish and uh, Persian loan word, which means the black garden. Kara meaning black in Turkish, and Bakh is a garden in Persian. Uh, and for for Armenians, uh, that region was called uh, Artsakh. Uh, it was at one point an independent Armenian kingdom, and then later it became a um, a province of the Armenian kingdom. It's a very big uh, historical importance for Armenians because it's where the Armenian alphabet was first created. Uh, Armenia has a unique alphabet for those who aren't aware. Uh, eventually, the region was overtaken by the Seljuk Turks who, and then followed by the Turkomen, who were the tribes who followed after the Seljuks. And the descendants of the Turkomen in that region became the Azerbaijanis and many of them settled in the region and then competed over it with Armenians until uh, the Russians in the early 19th century retook re the entire Caucasus region, so what's today Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan from the empire of Iran. And when the, Persian, uh, when the Russian empire became Soviet Union in the, in the 1920s, this region was purposely separated from Armenia, despite having an overwhelmingly Armenian majority, and was transferred to the, the Azerbaijani Soviet Socialist Republic, but as a uh, autonomous uh, province, uh, oblast in Russian. So it was an Armenian ethnic province next to Armenia, but in the Azerbaijani Republic. At the time, this was part of Joseph Stalin's uh, idea for uh, a divide and conquer mentality to separate the ethnicities, mix the borders around so that it became impossible to develop eth uh, national ethnic identities. So when the Soviet Union began to collapse in the 1980s, the people, the Armenian majority of Nagorno-Karabakh uh, held a referendum according to what they saw as being their constitutional imperatives to rejoin the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1988. Uh, the result was that the Azerbaijani Soviet Socialist Republic began an operation to ethnically cleanse the Armenian population of Baku and Sumgait, which is the capital of Azerbaijan, which historically had a large Armenian minority. And a low-level conflict quickly grew, grew out, of, uh, out of scale and became a large international conflict that lasted until 1994, at which point the Armenians took over the entirety of the region uh, and declared it an independent state, the Republic of Artsakh, as it's called in Armenian. Uh, since then, so between 1994 and today, uh, successive governments in Azerbaijan have repeatedly declared that they will retake the entirety of that region, either through diplomacy or through force, but they've always had a very maximalist position. Whereas on the other Armenian side, there is always uh, ostensibly there was talk of uh, returning some of the territories which had been taken from outside the traditional uh, Nagorno-Karabakh area as bargaining chips. But for Azerbaijan, the negotiation has always been about you know, Armenia sim simply leaving the entire region or face war. And so for Azerbaijan, there's also been a lot of internal pressure because uh, the regime uh, that currently governs Azerbaijan uh, is presided over by Ilham Aliyev, who is the son of the previous president, who himself had been the general secretary of the Soviet Republic back then, and also the head of the Soviet KGB before that. So it's a political dynasty that maintains control over Azerbaijan mostly through its uh, its uh, control of uh, its vast natural resources, particularly oil and gas. Until very recently, uh, the Azerbaijani government kept up its rhetoric about you know returning Karabakh to the Azeris and so on and so forth. Uh, but the large uh, the amount of money that they made from exporting oil and gas allowed them to uh, obviously take some on the side, but also invest in infrastructure and things like that, which maintained a sense of balance in Azerbaijani society. However, in recent years, the price of oil has been going down. It is now at a historical, historically low point. Mm -hmm. um, 
several there have been several border conflicts since 1994 which have all ended either inconclusively or in humiliation for Azerbaijan despite the fact that Azerbaijan is three times the size of Armenia has a budget and they like to brag about the fact that their military budget is larger than Armenia's entire state budget so there's a lot of internal frustration amongst the Azerbaijani public who have who are waiting for the president to fulfill his promise um, and then of course uh, so why now why in September 2020 um, it's an election month today after all is going to be the first presidential debate in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, the, U the United States has recently um, uh, disengaged itself from the process in the South Caucasus and has sort of taken a back seat to uh, Russia and Turkey. At the same time, Turkey, which you know has just recently been involved in its own adventurism against Cyprus, Greece, and Egypt, and Israel in the last couple of months, has now turned its attention to this region and is supporting Azerbaijan in a way that is much more overt than ever before. Mm -hmm. uh, Turkey has always supported Azerbaijan as them both being, you know, Turkic brothers, etc. Uh, but never to this explicitly, because they have literally promised and apparently they are providing uh, military and technical and material assistance to the Azeris. Well, this, this is the point where I wanted to get to. First, thank you for the good uh, historical uh, background. A couple of points I want to get to. One is because some in the media have been trying to label the conflict as religious, uh, Muslims uh, versus uh, Christians, but it's not. It's more, uh, more about a territorial dispute. Uh, am I wrong to assume this? So it's religious in the same way that the troubles of Northern Ireland is religious. Right. In the sense that the, the, the fighting in northern in Belfast or whatever was never about whether uh, the Queen of England or John Paul II was the true head of the church. Right. It was never the, the, the religion in that context is part of identity and it, not an issue of uh, contention. So, yeah, I think that there is a bit of an overemphasis on the fact that Armenia is a Christian country, the first Christian country in the world whereas Azerbaijan and Turkey are Muslim. Having said that, Azerbaijan is a Shia country, whereas Turkey is a Sunni country. So even there, there's a bit of a disbalance when we talk about religion. But yes, it definitely gets overemphasized. However, that being said, uh, in many ways, Armenians and Azeris resemble each other. You know, there are uh, people who've lived side by side for decades, maybe centuries. One uh, Azeri dissident famously had said that Armenians are... Uh, Christian Azeris and Azeris are Muslim Armenians, you know, so the religion itself serves rather to distinguish the ethnicities more so than uh, a source of theological contention. Now you you mentioned Turkey, because I see here, I mean, in a way, you're right, the United States is just sitting, you know, in the background, making very, um, you know, Trump has made, I think, a statement about it, if not taking a lot of interest. But this could really explode to a regional conflict because uh, you have Turkey involved. Uh, I recently read that uh, the Turks have been using Syrian fighters uh, to yeah. help the Azerbaijanis. And then you have uh, the Azerbaijanis receive weapons from Israel, as far as I've kind of been uh, monitoring this this conflict. Then you have Iran in the in the picture, so it's really beyond that small area. That this this, if let uh, left, uh, you know, un, unchecked, it could kind of explode beyond the borders. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely what the major con concern in this conflict is: is that. Uh, this is a part of the world that most people can't find on a map, and yet the intricate system of alliances that both of these countries, Armenia and Azerbaijan, are involved in make it that they can easily turn a tiny regional uh, conflict into a major regional one. In fact, as of our recording this conversation right now, the Armenian Ministry of Defense announced that one of their fighters was shot down by a Turkish fighter. The Turks have mm. just denied this. This has happened about an hour ago. 
the Turks have denied this, but if true, this would be the first time that Armenian and Turkish militaries engaged since 1920, exactly 100 years ago. Uh, so that's a, a major development on its own, and it and may is a member fall of in NATO. Russia. Right. Turkey is a member of NATO, uh, and Armenia has two explicit um, uh, military alliances with Russia, which it can invoke if it feels concerned that its territorial sovereignty has been so, uh, violated by Turkey. So far, Armenia has not. Turkey, of course, has denied having shot down the aircraft. Um, we're still waiting to see what's going on. But indeed, uh, uh, you mentioned Israel. Uh, that's an interesting point because it's something that's uh, widely focused on by outside observers, the fact that uh, Israel has been militarily supplying Azerbaijan. And that's true in the sense that they've been receiving, um, uh, you know, next generation uh, UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles uh, from uh, is Israel, including uh, what they call suicide drones, which are, or kamikaze drones, is mm -hmm. also the term that's been used, which the Azerbaijanis have used in Armenia. And this is the first uh, battle incidents in history where this has happened. Um, but it's also worth pointing out that Russia is actually the largest arms supplier to Azerbaijan and to Armenia. So Russia has a vested interest in maintaining uh, the conflict in Karabakh as a ongoing uh, low-level uh, conflict that they can come in and uh, escalate or de-escalate when they feel it's necessary in order to keep the governments in both uh, countries within its orbit. And that creates a sense of tension with Armenia because Armenia feels, you know, first of all, uh, there are historical ties with Russia as being uh, an orthodox um, power. Uh, Russia historically had always defend, uh, described itself as being the defender of Christians in the Ottoman Empire. And this, uh, this perception has kind of continued on into the modern era. But also there are military uh, and political alliances between Armenia and Russia, which Armenia expects Russia to fulfill. Uh, and so it's a bit vexing for them to find out that a lot of the weaponry that are killing Armenian soldiers right now have been manufactured in Russia and sold to Azerbaijan. Uh, but the way, uh, the way Russia sees it is they can't lose Azerbaijan's uh, influence because Azerbaijan is an oil producer. They, Russia wants to be able to control the flow of Azerbaijani oil into Europe. Uh, and they don't want Turkish meddling into what they consider to be their backyard. So how much, so how much that, oil, uh, what's the role uh, of oil? I mean, you've early, you earlier mentioned that oil prices mm -hmm. are down, but then Azerbaijan has plenty of oil, right? And and is there any uh, pipelines also that connect Russia to the rest of the world through Azerbaijan or? No, so the point, the whole point is that uh, Azerbaijan is an alternative to Russian oil and gas for Europe, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and the, the situation in Belarus means that the European Union has been looking for ways to bypass Russia in terms of importing oil. And Azerbaijan offers that alternative. Uh, Azerbaijan, in about 10 years ago, built a oil and gas pipeline that completely circumvents Armenia. So it leaves Baku, it goes north into Georgia, and then passes Armenia, and then goes back down into Turkey, and then continues on to Greece. And so there's, they're right now continuing to build that pipe or extensions to that pipeline. So Russia is trying to limit that pipeline as much as possible. And to do so, they want to keep Azerbaijan in their favor. Now, so you have, we that, have a sizable uh, Armenian uh, community in the Middle East. And so you see a lot of people in the Middle East. Uh, I mean, they support their brothers and sisters in Armenia and Lebanon, uh, Syria, Palestine, and other places. But then... You see on the news that Syrian fighters, that's how they put it, are fighting alongside with the Azerbaijanis. I mean, do people in uh, Yerevan make that distinction? Between Armenians from the Middle East and Arab fighters 
No, no, it just, it just they're trying to kind of say, well, here's the Syrians are fighting alongside with the with the with the Turks, you know. That's that's is how it's been reported. While we know that uh, the vast majority of the population support uh, Ar Armenia. Uh, yeah, I, I think that Armenians in Armenia understand this distinction quite well, particularly because uh, the Armenian community in Syria was is has historically been closely aligned to the uh, Bashar al-Assad's regime, the Ba'athist regime, uh, and so for for them. Um, and of course, adding to that, the fact that Bashar al-Assad himself has had relatively close relations with uh, Ar Armenia historically. Uh, but that being said, for a lot of the Ar so Armenia is now home to some 10,000 Syrian-born Armenians who have fled Syria since the civil war began in 2011. And most of them, you know, they fled the jihadists, not the Ba'athists. Mm -hmm. um, so from their point of view, um, I don't think it's fair to say this, but I've seen this, this comment being made that the, the jihadists being employed by the Azerbaijanis are sort of a continuation of that suffering that they, they themselves felt in Syria. Because there are several Syrian and Lebanese-born Armenians who are currently in the Armenian army and who are engaged in battles as we speak. But that having been said, there is some evidence that the um, the Arab uh, militants who are currently fighting in Azerbaijan may not necessarily be jihadists. They're actually mercenaries mm -hmm. who have been um, recruited and trained by Turkey, most of whom have been around since 2016 and were not part of the original jihadist movement uh, in northern Syria, they're just being well. A lot of them, Italy. a lot of them, are not even Arabs themselves. Some of them uh, are from Chechnya and other places, uh, as you said. They are that's, that's possible as well. I don't know what their ethnicities are. They, they they just grabbed anybody who was in Idlib at the time, and reportedly they're being promised, you know, upwards of a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a month uh, to be involved in to give their lives for this cause. Apparently. Now, there is no love lost between Turkey and Armenia, you know, going back to the Ottoman Empire. So do you feel that this might actually spill over into kind of get direct? I mean, you, you've said today that it was breaking news that uh, uh, a pilot was shot down by a, a Turkish... And uh, killed. Yeah. And killed. So, I mean, that will be like really very dangerous if Turkey is and Armenia go back into direct conflict. Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, I can't stress how uh, critical the situation is right now. Uh, I, it's dark outside, but if I showed out the window, I could see Turkey from here. Uh, so we're under no illusions as to what that means for us. Uh, on the one hand, I like to think that the idea of Turkey invading Armenia would look very bad on the international scale considering that most of the world recognizes the Armenian genocide, except for Turkey, of course. And, and the United the States. And the United States. Well, the United States recognized it two years ago, or a year ago now. Well, I mean... So that was, it was a long time coming, but at mm -hmm. least it happened. Yeah. Uh, and also 49 out of 50 U.S. states also have individually recognized it. But anyway, uh, the point here being that... Um, yeah, today the Turkish foreign minister visited the Azerbaijani embassy in Ankara and declared that he, that Turkey stood with Azerbaijan uh, in their resolve to uh, finally uh, resolve the Armenian question, which is a very troubling use of terminology, considering that solving the Armenian question is the euphemism for the Armenian genocide. Uh, which, of course, they haven't recognized yet, as I mentioned. Um, so, yes, of course, it will look very bad for Turkey. Turkey hasn't been making a lot of friends in the West recently, uh, certainly not in Greece or, or Cyprus. But uh, it's one thing uh, it's one thing to express, you know, your, uh, your condemnation of Turkey, but that's not going to stop their tanks. 
So uh, we have a couple of minutes, Rafi, uh, and I know you've been posting uh, a lot about the situation, and I want to have our listeners and our viewers as well to learn more about the about what's happening. So where can they uh, kind of uh, what what website should they go to to keep up with the news? Because really, in the United States, we're getting really nothing. Sure. So your followers could follow me on Twitter at Rafi Elliott, two F's, two L's, two T's. Uh, I also recommend ArmenianWeekly.com, which is where I publish a lot of my coverage of the ongoing conflict. Other great sources would be uh, CivilNet.am and EVNReport.com, which has been providing excellent uh, English language reporting. Uh, on, on the confrontation. In fact, they have a journalist in Karabakh right now who is uh, reporting from the front directly. Rafi Erliat, thank you again for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you so much for inviting me. That was uh, Rafi Elliott uh, speaking to us from his perch in, uh, in Armenia, in the capital city, Jamal. And, you know, very compelling uh, analysis and depictions. What even was surprising to me is the extent of the proxy uh, elements and the outside influences. Is this yet another big proxy war that is shaping up in another region of the world? Uh, it sounds very... Uh, it could It could be, Jess, and I just want to remind you and remind our listeners that, uh, you know, to bear in mind mind that the other nations adjacent to the fighting yes. are ever unstable. So you have Georgia on one side, and of course we have Iran, which the United States keep, you know... Playing with. Playing with. And then, um, and then the all-rich Azerbaijan with 7 billion barrels of proven reserves and large amounts of natural gas. And we know where there is oil... There's there trouble. There is trouble. We've seen that. So well, seven we would say, million barrels. We would say where there's oil, there's trouble. But when there's oil, there's proxy influences on the region attempting to manage and control. So it appears that Azerbaijan, Armenia are stuck in a lot of different influences, again, from the outside that could really inflame the situation, Jamal. Yeah, and then they also have their pipelines, right. which, are, which remain uh, vul vulnerable. They run as close as 10 miles from the Armenian border. Wow. So if, this is, you know, so, so if, uh, if Armenia decides to attack the pipelines, they're within reach. Then, of course, you have the Rus Russia, and then you have Turkey. Right. Turkey now according to Armenian reports, has been involved by, uh, basically they're saying that they downed one of their uh, jets and it has been bringing uh, some of those ISIS uh, troops uh, or Syrian uh, dissidents uh, that left Syria into Turkey. It's, it has been dumping them on, uh, you know, in the, in, in, it's pouring them into that conflict. And then, and guess what? Israel of course. supplies Azerbaijan with its killer drones and any and other weapons. So, of, of course, again, we're going to keep an eye on this. Uh, it's not receiving enough coverage here, right here in the United States, but this is, I think, an important regional conflict that can easily, basically, engulf the entire area yeah, into war. I think that's right, Jamal. It's a good segue to our next discussion about the presidential. It wasn't really a debate, but I'll call it. I'm going to call it the presidential nekba or the presidential uh, catastrophe that happened uh, earlier this week on, on Tuesday. But the connection to the debate is you have an administration and a president who, who are so kind of unstable and not able to take on the big uh, events and tasks and difficulties in the world with, with any kind of intelligence that what's happening in Azerbaijan and Armenia could easily inflame into something that could cause much more problems. <laughs> Did we hear anything about foreign policy or well, any well, of that? Well, like we didn't. We didn't hear anything, and that's <laughs> kind of my point. That we're we're kind of in this really unstable time right now, where if something more happens, you know, this is a very difficult, dangerous, and chaotic time for so much, and I'm not even going to say lack of leadership, because I think what Donald Trump is doing is not lack of leadership. I'm going to call it dangerous, catastrophic leadership, just to put it out there. 
So now the commission that oversees the general election just, uh, I mean, the general election presidential debates right. said uh, yesterday that it will be making changes to the format of the remaining two debates. One key change it plans to implement, and this is, I think, unprecedented, is cutting off the microphones of President Trump and Joe Biden if they break the rules. I mean, that's, that's what at least being discussed. And of course, the next debate, which is going to be a town hall setting, there, there will be about 15 to 20 people asking questions. And I just can't see that debate, frankly, is going to be any better. And I don't actually see if there should be another debate after what we have witnessed. It was a total disaster. Well, I think that's a very good point, Jamal. And um, I, I'm, I have lots of different uh, conflicting kind of reactions to it. I don't expect that a kill switch, even on the mic of Donald Trump, is going to have any impact whatsoever on the next debate. Even though it's a town hall style of debate, where there will be questions coming in from, um, you know, you know, from people sitting in the audience or from outside sending in their questions to uh, the president and the vice president, former vice president. I do not believe that a kill switch is going to stop Donald Trump from being belligerent, from interrupting people, from being attacking and from being chaotic. The idea that I had is put Donald Trump and Joe Biden in two separate rooms with a kill switch uh, also, and let the questions come back and forth, and Donald Trump can either answer or not answer the question, same with Joe Biden, but that they're separated so that Donald Trump cannot, you know, basically be belligerent and physically, you know, attack verbally Joe Biden, because in a town hall, Jamal, what's going to stop Donald Trump from yelling at the top of his lungs and interrupting still? Answer me that. Well, I feel like this uh, debate needs to be moderated like a uh, MMA fight or a boxing match where yes. you have the moderator right in the middle, kind of separating them <laughs> and with a remote kill switch to turn off the microphone. But literally, but it won't because stop what him. stops, it won't because stop here him. it is, if you, if you turn off the microphone of uh, Donald Trump, what stops him from walking he won't. to Biden's microphone he won't or face to face, which he did with Hillary Clinton? He That's remember right. when he was talking her That's and right. walking behind her? So he'll leave his microphone. So you really have to turn off both microphones, which means you will be interrupting, interrupting Biden because that the, the, his whole basically strategy was to be, keep interrupting him, interrupting him, and interrupting him. And I frankly, I mean, I'm just going to give you my overview about that last debate before we think about the next one is really, I thought that Chris Wallace was a very bad moderator. Yes. He really lost. I mean, I know people were making excuses. Well, you cannot control it. I think he could have done more from the beginning. And he waited till the end to start asserting himself. He should have been very forceful, even if he needed to leave his seat and walk and stand in between them. So that's that's my take, and I'm, I'm, you know, I know he's a very good journalist, but I was really disappointed, and and really like you know that debate descended like what uh, I mean you've watched better high school debates it was like very childish, very childish, uh, by especially uh, Trump and kind of in a way uh, Biden with debate yes. started you know yes. you know calling him names like yes. clown and whatever. And Trump is a bully, so so he is a bully. So that's why I said the moderator has to treat him as such. And frankly, also Biden, aside from using name calling and whatever, but he also lacked energy. He his batteries could have been charged better. Yeah. And my last comment, which I'll say, that I think that clowns worldwide should demand an apology <laughs> from Biden for calling Trump a clown during the debate, because Trump is not funny. He is dangerous. You know, Jamal, I think your comments are spot on. Uh, that's very consistent with, you know, my my analysis. I, I will tell you, it's among the most painful, difficult 90 minutes of television that I've ever had to, you know, watch or bear witness to. In addition to the belligerence coming from the president 
And the biting of the bait, as you said, by Joe Biden, which I thought was a, a complete mistake. And he did have low energy. And, you know, neither one of them are the sharpest knives in the drawer, to be quite honest. But the thing that disturbed me the most, and I, I think the people of the United States, we are all in denial about how mentally and psychiatrically and emotionally unstable the president of the United States is. What it showed to me as a, uh, a medical health professional is that he is unstable from a psychiatric standpoint, unable to contain his raw emotions, even though this was planned. I mean, this is the Trump strategy is to derail, interfere, bully uh, Joe Biden. Even his handlers were surprised. Even the handlers. they wanted him to, right. to disrupt, but exactly. they thought that he went overboard. Well, the overboard is what I want to talk about. The overboard means that he is unstable. And we actually have an individual in the United States right now in, among with the most powerful position in the world with his finger on the codes of the nuclear uh, arms that we have in this country who is so unstable right now. And my prediction and I've said this a number of times, he sees the writing on the wall when narcissistic individuals who are this unstable see that they're going to lose potentially. He will unravel even more. I do not believe he's going to leave the office if he loses. And I don't believe he's going to leave peacefully. He already said that. that. We he need to be much Jamal, we need to believe him. If he says that, we need to believe him. And the other I mean, two things I know of, we, we know from this debate. One, he will not condemn white supremacy. White supremacy. He won't. Period. Well, he's period. actually, but Jamal, he's not, it's not that he's not condemning it. He's advocating for it. He's, he's encouraging he's communicating. it. He's exactly. he, he sounded like a, a mafia boss telling his people to kind of like to stand down or whatever. Bear like arms. Be ready, be ready for, for the next order. I mean, I have never seen a president doing something like this ever. Yeah, So that's so, what I'm worried the other about. Thing, and then the other thing, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm more worried about the day after the elections that I am worried about what's going to happen before the elections. Well, you should be, Jamal, because I'll tell you, insiders within our intelligence communities uh, are very alarmed about this. The reports that I'm reading from people with inside our intelligence services. You know, they've made a lot of mistakes, obviously. But one of the things that we're hearing is that they're preparing for what could be armed uh, insurrections, coup-like insurrections, civil war-like enactments that these white supremacists like the poor, you know, poor boys and um, all these other groups that uh, Trump has called to action may at some point, if Trump loses the election, may take to the streets with arms and the proud, uh, the proud, proud boys. boys. Poor boys. I'd like to call them the. Poor I'd like boys to. Sorry, they're mentally poor. Yeah, actually. but they're proud. They're proud, and he. They actually now have t-shirts with the sayings that Trump had during the debate, you know, stand back and stand down. They now have t-shirts. They were so excited to be promoted by the president of the United States. Jamal, after the election, until the inauguration, if Donald Trump loses, and it's not clear to me that he will lose, by the way, but should he lose, you could expect a re- living of among the most difficult, painful parts of our history. This is like Abraham Lincoln, the the ugly and devastating civil war that we had uh, during the 19th century. These are old wounds that are being resurrected yet again, fomented. Gasoline is being poured on this smoldering fire of resentment from people from as far back as our civil war, Jamal. So I am very concerned. He is, in my opinion, very mentally unstable. And I'm sorry to say this, he may win again. And if he doesn't, it's going to be a very difficult, if not scary time, not just for us in the United States, but for the entire world. I mean, the world looks at us yesterday. I mean, at the debate on Tuesday, Jamal, they're, they're both laughing at us because it's so embarrassing. But I think the world is also very scared. 
Well, you're absolutely right. Just like as I said earlier, uh, the scary part is going to be what happens at when and if he loses. Uh, you're right. I mean, he might not lose because he's saying, basically, if I win, I win. If I lose, I still win. I don't because I don't believe it because I don't I won't believe the results. Yeah, he's already planting the seed that he's getting cheated, that he's planting the seed and doubt about absentee ballots, everything like, you know, so whatever you're going to call it, unless in my opinion, that the elections get called very fast because the margin was uh, very big. You know, like you can actually call, like the way you call, right. you know, the state of California, we know uh, Donald Trump is not going to win here and he's going to lose by a big margin. But then if this happens with the uh, swing states like Michigan, like Florida and whatever, uh, early on, early on in, in the race, maybe... Uh, you know, well, basically, he his supporters will get support, uh, maybe convinced. And right. and what drives me crazy uh, are all these people. By, by the way, I directly actually the analysis after that. I did not watch CNN till later on. I went to Fox News. They were all elated, happy, euphoric. Oh, he won. He kicked his behind. He he showed uh, you know that he was in charge. It's a total world out there, and this is the most watched network in the United States, especially when it comes to Trump supporters. So they all think that the president did extremely well, with the exception later on some people said, well, maybe he was too uh, hyper or he overdone uh, it. But they all believe that he won the debate. Well, here, here's the thing. I, I kind of don't care what the 40% of the Trump loyalists uh, believe. Um, we're talking about 7 to 9% of the U.S. electorate, Jamal, who are relatively undecided still. I mean, you have probably 45 to 50% of the people on the side of, of uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats. You have about 40% on the Republican side. We're really talking about that 10% plus or minus in the middle who remain undecided. So I, I would like to ask a question to you and our listeners if you're um, if you're a, a if you're a young mother and or or homemaker uh, in the Midwest and you have children and you're struggling financially and you're worried about climate change or you're worried about the safety of your children and you watched the uh, performance and it was a performance, Jamal. Let's call it what it is—a kind of mentally unstable performance on Donald Trump. Would that make you, as an undecided voter, feel closer to Donald Trump, or would you say, "Hey, I, I don't know if I could trust the future for my children or the future of my family to this guy who, you know, is basically out of control and a big bully"? I'm not sure he convinced a lot of Midwestern. Families, men and women who are struggling right now economically, that 10%. I'm not sure he convinced many people, Jamal. Yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll counter you with this, with another question, and that's the dangerous part. Having seen this debate, those people that you are talking about, are they going to go out and even vote? They may not. Uh, they're going to be so disgusted seeing this performance and if you were going to inspire them to go out to watch, you know, this humiliation, really humiliation for all Americans. I'm humiliated. You're humiliated because this is like uh, was broadcast to 70 million plus people. And then more uh, afterwards. Yeah. And more afterwards. And, and to say, you know, for these people, are they going, you know, I mean, are they going to be inspired to vote for Donald Trump? Are they going to be inspired to, to vote for no, but, Joe Biden? But so this is the Trump strategy. This is the Republican strategy, Jamal. It's called voter suppression. And the Republican Party has been involved with voter suppression for 100 years, probably even longer for all, all that we know. But the strategy of the Republicans since Kennedy or since Eisenhower, actually, the Southern strategy is to engage in systemic, systematic, systemic voter suppression of African-Americans, people of color, and disenfranchised people. The only way they can win the Electoral College is by voter suppression. 
So Trump's strategy is to create an atmosphere where people will either give up, not feel like it's worthwhile to vote, or feel afraid to vote because he's telling his supporters, go to the polls and watch. And they're going to go to the polls. They're going to be armed in, in states that have open carry laws where you can carry your weapons. And people are going to be afraid. So the strategy of suppressing the vote is the primary strategy of Trump and the Republicans right now. And it very well, hate to say this, but it very well could work. Because if those 10% who are undecided, if a certain percentage of them are too afraid to vote, he could easily win re-election. Well, uh, Biden tried to kind of uh, keep going back and saying to people, go vote, vote. But I don't think he was uh, he's uh, not compelling. convincing enough. No, he's not. I think, I think if, if you're right, which I think you are, is uh, the Democratic Party has to do a better job in getting out the vote. They have to convince the average Joe or the average person who is, not, uh, who is undecided that their life depends on it. This is really the message, it, that, that their life actually depends on voting and get them out and get the, for example, uh, the African-American community and other uh, people of color who went out and voted for uh, Obama to kind of even exceed those numbers right, and right. not stay at home because they are disgusted and they are disfranchised and they watch this debate and said, I, you know, I, I, I throw that white towel, I'm not going to get involved. And, and that's really what the Democratic Party and Joe no. Biden has to do uh, to win. So I have two questions for you, Jamal, because I know we only have a few more minutes left. Two questions. What do you make of the fact that probably the most unstable, crazy, dangerous man on the planet, that Israel's best supporter and best friend is this man. So let, let's just break it down a little bit in terms of like, the Israelis have this apartheid, oppressive state where they're ocup occupying, stealing, and oppressing, you know, millions of Palestinians and, and continue to get away with it. And their biggest supporter is someone who's this, who's, who's a thug and mentally unstable. What do we make of that? Question number one. Question number two, isn't it interesting? You have 53 Republican senators who were so humiliated for the most part last night, not a single one had the courage, I wanted to say another word, but had the courage to confront Donald Trump publicly condemning his actions. It's a pretty sad state on both accounts. Yeah, well, listen, the first question, of course, we know what Donald Trump is capable of doing if he wins a second term, because then he got nothing to lose. So, so if you take anything that he has done on the Palestinian-Israeli front or anything, Iran, or trying right. to ban the Muslims, multiply that by 10 if he gets another term. He's just going to basically accelerate everything, and now he's going to have control over the Supreme Court. So it's just like he's going to be like a runaway train, unstoppable, and that's the dangerous part. Now, as far as the GOP, I watched yesterday on CNN, Ted Cruz getting into kind of in a tangle with... Uh, uh, on with Cuomo. I mean, this guy, Donald Trump, called him every name in the book. And his wife. Him personally, and his wife. And he attacked his wife. And then now he's like his biggest defender. And, and this is the, actually the State of the Union. These senators, congressmen, congresswomen, the GOP, they're scared. They are afraid from Donald's, Donald Trump control over their base that they will lose, <clears throat> that they are willing to say and do anything, you know. And maybe later on, if he gets defeated, they'll come out and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, look at them. Every single one, uh, Rubio, whatever, Marco Rubio, same thing. He used to call him little, uh, little Marco, humiliate him. Now they're, they're all have become his surrogates. Right. And... and and, uh, you know, name, name every single one of them. They've criticized him heavily. They weren't expecting him to win. He won. And they just don't care. 
Well, I, I feel that they don't care about the rest of the country. All that they care about is getting re-elected and receiving donation and money. And they think that Donald Trump has the key to this. Well, I think that's exactly right, Jamal. I guess my point being, I mean, I asked you a couple of, you know, obvious questions that we've, we've kind of talked about. But I think what raises the stakes for me is that the GOP now knows that they are part and parcel of fomenting another kind of civil war in the 21st century in the United States of America. That unless they get their arms around this and they're willing to throw the entirety of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, everything that this country has been through in our great experiment of being a democracy, they're willing to throw it all out the window in order to keep some judges on the Supreme Court. The long-term consequences of what's going to happen after the election in November if Donald Trump loses is has the potential to be as catastrophic in many different ways as what happened to this country during the Civil War. So for me, at least, the stakes have gotten much higher for the GOP and their complicity of silence right now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We don't have much time left, uh, Jess, but on a lighter moment, uh, when President Donald Trump, uh, and when he was like confronted about... Uh, you know, releasing his taxes, the long-anticipated tax returns. Biden questioned him when, and then and then he paused and he said, "Inshallah," right? <laughs> so that kind of created some uh, sto- a small storm on Twitter land, right? And and you know, like uh, you know, that he's using an Arabic word, basically, "Inshallah," which uh, basically means uh, literally means. Uh, uh, that uh, if God wills it, right, and and people make a joke because you know in the Arab world when you say inshallah, means it's not going like to happen. It's not going to happen like <laughs> maniana, maniana, saying like it's never going to happen. So that was a lighter, I would say, lighter moment. Uh, if people paid attention to it, uh, that's uh, what happened. So you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Please follow us on our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download all our previous episodes. And uh, we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.